Today's question is from Peter from Glasgow, Scotland. In the email, he says, Dear Dr. Chow, I hope this email finds you well. I'm not sure whether this will get to you, but wanted to reach out. As I've been feeling in a bit of a crisis of my practice as a psychotherapist and have been reading your book, First Kiss, and to put it bluntly, there is too much choice. I'm constantly distracted and preoccupied by the great myriad of trainings, books, models, etc. And I find myself paralyzed at times on what to actually do with people. I want to help and be the best I can. I've been excited and intrigued by Dr. Scott Miller and your writings as well. And I appreciate that there are many factors more important than the therapeutic school or modality, but it still leaves me anxious about what do I actually subscribe to in a session as I can't just do anything and everything. I still need to present a coherent narrative to my clients and link that to the work we do together. Even integrative or transdiagnostic models like PBT or multimodal therapy feel overwhelming. And when I look at deliberate practice, it seems great, but doesn't answer my overall questions. I wonder, should I just pick a good, well-fitting model for me and then work at practicing the best version of that as far as I can? or whether I'm missing something entirely. So I wanted to write in case there was anything you could point me in the direction of reading or doing that could help. Warmest regards, Peter. So there's quite a bit to unpack here, but this is a very important question, and I hope for us to be able to look and peer inside the implications of this, because embedded in the question, uh, it it says that, should I just pick a good, well-fitting model for me and practicing the best version of that I can, or whether am I missing something? Because there's a sense of overwhelm. There's a lot of modalities and different approaches for us to be looking at. So we'll be covering about seven key ideas as we unpack that question that Peter has. You know, when I was a kid, uh, probably about primary one to primary three onwards, all I was obsessed with at that time was that I wanted to look like the group bros. It's kind of embarrassing to say, but it's basically these twins. They were famous for singing the song, When Will I Be Famous? And then later on in my teenagers, all I wanted to sound like when I was playing in a band was to sound like Metallica, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, The Verve, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, and and the like. And it's no coincidence that the great jazz legend Miles Davis says that, man, it takes a heck of a long time to sound like yourself. So let's start with tip number one. Let's start with what is your belief? How does healing take place? This is a really important question to kind of unpack and just ask ourselves. And this could be informed by what we've learned or what you have experienced with your interaction with people or somebody who is helpful to you in your life. I know for me, being helped by other people in my life, someone like Father Colt Berito and even my supervisor, Juliana Tour, has a huge profound influence on how I relate with people. Some, something about their embodied disposition, their way of conducting themselves has 
a, a profound impact on the way that I relate with people. And we also got to ask about how does healing take place? How does change take place? I would say, please take some time to answer that for yourself based on your learnings and based on your experiences all in and list this down. You could write it out longhand. You could map this out, whatever it takes, but just allow yourself to bring this to bear outside of yourself and put it down on ink and paper or digitally if you want to. Second, name two to three, not more than that, approaches that speaks to you. So name two approaches that really resonate with you. And when you name that, follow that up with why does that speak to you? So early on in my career, I started off as a, as a youth worker, but then as I was progressing, that I was making some changes to go into the field of psychology. The, the work by William Glasser really spoke to me. And this was in some strange way, uh, something that one of my mentors at that time, Paul Key, suggested that I should look at this area because it was really interesting. And true enough, it, it really was resonant for me. His ideas around choice theory were, was very sensible. It's, it's very close to a cognitive behavioral therapy framework except that he's got a certain kind of scaffold and, and ways that he addressed concepts that I really like. For example, his five basic needs principles of survival, love and belonging, freedom, autonomy, and fun. I mean, those ideas still uh, today it still speaks to me. You know, you got to figure out why some things actually make sense to, to you. And for me, his five basic needs idea speaks to me quite profoundly because it seems to address the things when people are working with you that all these unmet needs all these emotional needs are unattended to because emotional needs are frankly non-negotiables and if we don't attend to them we get psychological symptoms and those things made a lot of sense but it was those particular ideas that really spoke and for you for you Peter I would suggest that just kind of use that as a springboard. Pick two to three modalities that speaks to you and then examine why. What about it? What about it that really speaks to you? The third one is what's your history of change? Ask yourself, what sowed the seeds of change for you? What touched, moved and inspired you in those pivotal times in your life? Sometimes I would like to suggest at this point in time is to kind of draw out a kind of timeline and the, the horizontal axis would be your time from as a young child till now and then the vertical axis would be the intensity. So the significant events that you note down, it doesn't have to be negative only, it could be positive, it could be both and you just note down little leaps of how you cross between worlds, how you made transitions in, in your life and kind of examine that with the benefit of where you are right now and look back at what, what has been your history of change, what prompted change, what promoted growth, what helped in the healing endeavor in your journey, in your life. Fourth, ask yourself your clinical history with clients. If you have been a practitioner for a while already, re-examine your cases in detail pull out those cases, the case notes, and look through them. And then ask the question of what cultivated growth, change, and promoted healing for these people, the way that you facilitated 
the sessions. So in other words, you're not just looking at the clinical history of your clients. You're looking at that and seeing how you related with them at specific time points and then asking yourself what cultivated growth change and promoted healing through those times. So all this is stacking up, isn't it? So we've got four so far. The first one is start with what is your belief? How does healing and change take place? And then two, name a couple of approaches, no more than two or three of why they speak to you. Then the third one is your history of change, looking at your own experience. And then fourth, we just mentioned, is looking at your caseloads, your past caseloads so far, and looking at them and seeing what promoted growth and change. The fifth one is, and this is a really important one, this is where a lot of people get stuck. I would suggest that you develop your own baseline blueprint of how you do therapy. What I mean by this, a baseline blueprint simply means that imagine that you're trying to communicate to people after you've examined your caseloads, have you done what you've done so far, you try to explicate how you do what you do as if you're trying to teach somebody, as if you're trying to explain to somebody who is new to this field. And it could be writing up bullet points. It could be like a sort of flow chart or mind map. Doesn't matter, whatever suits you. But just explain where you do what you do, right? The set of actions that you take. But then also in each of the note, kind of ask about why. Why would you do that? What's the theoretical underpinnings, what's the motivation, what's the principles that's driving you to think about how you begin that way? What, why would you ask those set of questions? And go on and go on all the way through the full 60 minutes. This is hard because you kind of, you're trying to do things that you normally do implicitly. You do, there's a sense of what uh, the researchers like to call tacit knowledge, things that you just do, right? But here, you are making the things tacit to become a little bit more conscious, not that it should stay there, but so that you could start to tweak, adjust, refine, and improve those areas. And then it also brings to light what are some of the forces that's pulling you, that's informed, what are some of the anchors that are, are helping you hold steadfast in the way that you do what you do. Number six, this is now more prospective I would suggest for you to capture Weekly Therapy Learnings, WTL. What Weekly Therapy Learnings just simply means is that at the end of a typical work week that you have, take five minutes, note down after you've looked through your caseloads, looked through the calendar, people that you've met, and just funnel down to one key learning for yourself. Put a date on it, serialize that with number one and give a title later on or if you can give it immediately, go ahead and do that and just write down what is a significant learning for you based on the people you've met. So this could be something that struck you uh, or something that turned out well or it could be a blunder, something that, that didn't go well as well. Note that down. Again, put, the, put a serial number on it, number one, and put a date. The reason for doing that is that you want to build your weekly therapy learnings through time, one week at a time. What's going to be really cool about this is that you basically develop 
like your very own Irving Yalom's book called The Gift Therapy. Instead, this is very personalized. This is yours. And this would give you a sense as well, the, the kind of recursive loop that's informing you of what you do, what you do. But more than that, you're also now creating a repository of your learnings. So I've been doing this for some years now and over close to 200 plus coming to 300 plus notes of that has been really helpful because this leads to the last and final point on retrieval practice. So when I look at these notes, I test myself, I look at the header and then I try to see and recall if I could pull up from my memory bank what that was. And when I can't and I look at it, it's, it's interesting that it speaks to me that how come I could forget something that's so significant? And when we forget what we learn, that's okay, because forgetting is not the enemy of learning, as Robert Bjork, the, the learning science scientists, would say that it's not, because when we forget and able to retrieve, and when we are able to retrieve, we actually improve our learning a little bit more deeply. So I would encourage for you to be able to capture these weekly therapy learnings and to retrieve them as well. So this by itself does not answer the question of what should you do, but you start to create this sort of loop informing you, this kind of virtuous cycle that's of a deep learning loop that helps you to reinforce what you believe in. In short, I think it's important that you are doing what you believe in. So sometimes borrowing ideas from other approaches is going to be really helpful. This is not about just being eclectic or integrative. I think this is about developing your own voice. Let's think about this for a second. When we say evidence-based practice, you know, many people like to ask uh, clinicians, are you doing evidence-based practice? I think this somewhat misleading term because people conflate that with the fact that, oh, evidence-based practice means some research has been done. I mean, that's partially true, but it's more than that. Evidence-based practice or EBP is not only about basing on what are the available evidence for a particular way of working, but it's also two other things. It's combining that with adopting towards clients' preferences, their cultural beliefs, as well as tapping into your expertise, bringing out everything that you can to bear to help somebody right in front of you, regardless of what kind of endorsement of modality that is. That's not so important. I think what's more important is that you are checking that the person's engaged and is yielding the outcomes that it should yield. And if it's not, we should be reiterating, we should be recalibrating, we should be adjusting and not just trying to stick to a modality. So hang in there, Peter. Please make sure that you also keep thinking out loud about this. I hope these seven ideas may be helpful and speak to other people too. They have different views that may be helping you to expand your original view. Frontiers Radio. Welcome back to Frontiers Radio, brought to you from Frontiers of Psychotherapist Development. We've been on a long hiatus from the podcast and the video series. My hopes is that we're going to go back into this and specifically, we're going to do a bit of Q&As. 
Here's some questions that I've gotten over time and I'm going to be replying to them. And if you have any that you would like to raise about your professional development, please send them to info at darylchow.com. That is I-N-F-O at darylchow, D-A-R-Y-L-C-H-O-W.com. And I hope to be able to answer your questions that you may have related to getting better at what we do as psychotherapists. You could send an email or if you like, you could send a voice memo. Just make sure that it is up close to your phone. You're recording that voice memo on this minimal ambient noise at the back. Hope to hear from you and stay tuned for more episodes on this. 